0: Father, we thank you for this time to come and to gather here and to sing praises to you and to be gathered as your people you have called together in this place for your purpose. And we do pray that we would be filled with knowledge and a love for you and a knowledge of what a great God you are this morning that feeling and that encouragement we feel of being gathered together that it would
1: compel us it would motivate us as we leave
0: this place and go out in the rest of our week to live lives that are dedicated to you that are um, yeah just attractive to a watching world that we would love the people around us well both our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and also those in the world around us that we would love them that we would care for them. That above all, we would love you. God, we pray for those people in our church who are dealing with sickness or poor health or other challenges in their life, that you would be with them, that you would bring healing where it's needed, that you would bring comfort and peace where it's needed. God, above all, that we just pray that we would constantly live in light of the knowledge that one day you will come and you will undo all the hard and difficult things that are the result of living in a fallen and broken world. And, all God, as we continue to sing, we just pray that you would be honored, you be glorified, that our hearts would be turned toward you, and we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. If you're visiting with us or you're watching online, and we're glad you're here. And if you don't know who I am, I'm am Tim, I'm the one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And we're glad you're all here with us this morning. So it's amazing and a little bit concerning like how often I can know all the facts of a given situation, and still fail to think through all the consequences of those facts. The phrase, like, I didn't think about the fact, dot, 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 has left my mouth way too many times in my life. It could have gotten so bad in one particular situation that I can no longer be the one who orders pizza if my brother and his wife are joining us and we're having pizza. And I pick up my brother's wife, Danielle. She's allergic to pork. I know this. I know that fact. So I know that when I order pizza, I need to order something that doesn't have pork products in it. I also know that pepperoni and sausage and ham are all pork products. I know that. I'm not, I know that. And yet, two times in a row, I ordered pizza when they were over, and I failed to order a pork-free option. Like, like to me, ordering pizza without pepperoni or sausage like, borders on pointless. Right? And so, like, I just didn't think about the fact right, that pepperoni and sausage are both pork products. So, like, maybe that first time could be forgiven. But the second time, like, I actively thought, like, okay. I need to order something that doesn't have pork. I, I, I thought that. And so, like, I need to, I can't make that mistake again. I had to order a pizza that Danielle can have. And so, the second time we're ordering pizza, and I order the pizza I want, and then I start scanning the menu for something that's pork-free. And I, like, come across a pizza that's, like, chicken bacon ranch. And like my only thought was like, ah, chicken's not pork, and I like bacon, so that sounds good. Right? And I didn't think about the fact that you know, pork or bacon is the pork product. Right? And so having been totally humbled by those two experiences, like I make my brother do all the ordering now whenever we have pizza with them. And if I was ever going to be one who ordered again, like I would need someone like standing right in front of me saying, like, remember, like Danielle is allergic to pork. And also remember, right, therefore, don't order pepperoni, don't order sausage, don't order ham, don't order bacon. Like, I would need someone to remind me of those facts. But I also need someone to remind me of how to apply those facts when I order pizza sometimes so we need to be reminded not just of the truth, but we also need to be taught and reminded of the truth or the ramifications of that truth, of the implications of the truth we already know. That's what we see in our passage this morning. John, in our passage, is going to remind us of our, the truth of our relationship with God. It's going to remind us of who we are in Christ And then he's going to tell us like how that should impact how we live our lives. So we've been in the book of 1 John the past few weeks, and so we pick up this week in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 17. And what we're going to see in this passage is that our relationship with God should produce a rightly oriented love. The truth of who we are in Christ and what we know of God should cause us to love God more than the world. So we're going to read this passage and if you have your Bible in front of you and you're looking at this passage, you'll see verses 12 through 17 are kind of broken into two pretty clear sections. Verses 12 through 14, it's John reminding us of who we are in Christ, of our relationship with God. And then verses 17, Fifteen through seventeen deal more with the ramifications of that truth. So, with that in mind, let's read this passage. John writes, "I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father." I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so the first thing we see in this passage is John reminding his readers of the the truth of their status with God. Remember, verses 12 through 14, John addresses three groups, dear children, fathers, and young men. And he addresses each of these groups two different times, saying either exactly the same thing or something very similar to each group both times. And there's, there's a lot of discussion among people who care about these sorts of things, like whether these three groups refer to three different age levels or whether, dear children, it's just John's way of referring to the whole church and then he's referring to two different age levels. Right. And I tend to think that John uses dear children here in this passage to address the whole church because that's the way he uses dear children in the rest of the book. Right? So, For example, in chapter 2, verse 1, John is clearly writing to the whole church when he calls them dear children. In chapter 3, verse 7, again, he is clearly writing to the whole congregation when he calls them dear children. So I think it makes sense that John... Would be using dear children here in this passage as well to refer to the whole church. Right. But here's the thing. Right. For people who are nerdy about these sorts of things, like, like I am, right, it's an interesting question to consider, right, whether he means the whole church or one group. But at the end of the day, if the truth doesn't change. Because whether John is addressing only the youngest Christians in the audience or whether he's addressing the whole congregation, what he has to say following dear children is true for all Christians. If it's true at the earliest stages of your Christian life, then it doesn't stop being true as you progress in the faith. So that then leaves two other groups, those who John calls fathers and those who he calls young men. We need to be careful not to get wrapped up in gender here. It's just the language John was writing in. They used the masculine to refer to whole groups of both genders frequently. And so when John addresses fathers, he's addressing all those in the church who are older, regardless of gender. And when he addresses young men, he's addressing all those in the church who are younger. So at the end of the day, like certain truths may be more pertinent to different age groups, than others, But each truth John tells his readers in this passage is ultimately true of all Christians. And what John has to tell his readers is simply a reminder of their relationship with God and who they are in Jesus. In particular, he reminds them of three truths about their relationship with God. The first of these truths that we see in verse 12 is that your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The last week in our sermon, we looked at various ways we can assess and test our lives to know whether we truly know God. And what we said then was that we need to be careful right, not to confuse the test John gave us of whether we know God with a list of things to do in order to earn God's forgiveness. Right? And John kind of drives that point home here. He reminds his reared again that if you have trusted in Jesus, right, then your sins have been forgiven. Not they will be forgiven, as long as you stay on the right path. Not they've been partially forgiven. Not the forgiveness process has already started. If you know and believe Jesus, then all your sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven on account of his name. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and didn't deserve death, When he died on the cross, then he died in your place. And if you trust him, all your sins, like your past sins, no matter how heinous, your present sins and any future sins are all already paid for and dealt with and forgiven in Jesus. John is writing not to show us how to be forgiven, but because our sins have already been forgiven. And now he wants to show us how to live in light of that truth. So the first truth John wants us to remember is that our sins are forgiven. And the second truth John wants his readers, especially those who are older, to remember, is that they know the eternal God. In verses 13 and 14, John writes more or less the same thing two times to the fathers when he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him was from the beginning. What John is saying here is I want to remind you that the God you know hath been the same God from the beginning and will continue to be the same God into eternity. He is the unchanging and eternal God. And as I said, like all of John's statements are true of all Christians. If you and this one's no different, right? If you believe Jesus, then. You know him who have from the beginning. But I do believe there's a certain significance to the fact that John chose to address this particular reminder to those who are older in his church. So, right? so I'm 33. Right? And to some of you, that probably seems fairly young. Right? But, but even I started to feel some of the effects of getting older. Right? I wake up stiff more often, I have more random aches and pains than I used to. And again, I know some of you who are older are thinking, like, just you wait. And, like, I I don't, like, but all I'm saying is, like, I'm starting to feel the effects of aging. Like, I looked up all the ages of all the players on the Packers roster, and there are exactly three of them who are older than me. In fact, there's only three players on the whole roster who are over 30. Why? Because unless you're a one-in-a-billion freak athlete of nature like Aaron Rodgers, or you're a kicker like Mason Crosby, or like 30-something-year-old bodies are not made for the rigors of a physical sport like football at the highest level. Here's the point. As we age, as we become less capable of certain things, their bodies break down, as the effect of living in a fallen and a broken world become more and more real, then the fact that our God is a God who doesn't change, who doesn't grow old and weary, who has always existed perfectly and will always exist perfectly, that fact should be of great comfort to us. Our God is not subject to the effect of entropy or the effect of time. He doesn't age. He doesn't lose any power as, he, as time passes. Right? And that's true for all Christians. Right? But John addresses this specifically to those who are older. Right? As they feel the effect of time on their own bodies to remind them that God is in fact timeless. And in fact, God promises that one day He will usher in a new heavens and a new earth where all the negative effects of aging and illness and sin will be undone. And we will live forever with him in glorified bodies that will not age or fall apart. We have the privilege of knowing and worshiping the unchanging and eternal God of the universe. And John writes to remind us of that fact. So John writes to remind us that our sins are forgiven, that we know the eternal God, and third, he writes to remind us that we have overcome the evil one. John writes to the young people in the congregation where he says, I write to you because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And again, right, the fact that we have overcome the evil one is true for all Christians. But John is once again intentional in addressing these particular word to younger Christians. Well, older Christians need to be assured Right, that God doesn't change, or even, even if they themselves feel the effect of time. Right? Younger Christians often feel a different need. They need to be assured that the God that they have put their trust in is greater and mightier than the competing ideas and beliefs they will encounter in the world. The years of transition from adolescence to adulthood are some of the most ripe years for spiritual attack. Depending on whose number you use, researchers estimate that upwards of 70% of young people will leave the church, at least for a period of time. The immersion from the sheltered world of living under a parent's care and direction into a world of seemingly infinite worldviews can be a disorienting experience. And Satan would like nothing more than to use that experience to draw young people away from Christ. But John here is writing not to give those young Christians a step-by-step process on how to avoid falling away. Rather, he's trying to remind them they have already won. They already have victory over the evil one. When temptations come, when attacks against our faith come, we don't need to despair over whether we have the power to avoid temptation and hold fast to our faith. Why? Because if we truly know Jesus, John says, then we've already won. We've already overcome the evil one. And that doesn't mean we won't be tempted. That doesn't mean we won't struggle with doubt when we encounter new ideas or challenges to Christianity. But what it does mean is that when you sin and when you give in to temptation, it doesn't mean you've lost or you've totally failed. Because your sins are already forgiven. Jesus already paid for those sins. They've already been paid for. When we have periods of doubt, when we face hard questions about Christianity that we don't feel like we have an answer to, it doesn't mean we aren't a Christian. It doesn't mean Satan has won. What matters is the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. What matters is not how strong your faith is at any given moment, but, but who your faith is in. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. Our status with God does not depend on our perfect, ongoing obedience, but rather on our faith, no matter how imperfect Our faith in Jesus of perfect obedience on our behalf. And I'm convinced from my time working with children and families in my previous role that one of the greatest disservices we can do to our young people is to hide our challenges and our temptations and our doubts from them. Too often, young people are sent into the world with this idea that to be a mature Christian... And to have it all figured out and to never struggle with sin. Right? So then, when they go and they, out into the world, they encounter temptation. They encounter new ideas that they've never seen. Right? They don't have a model for how a healthy Christian responds to those challenges. And so they struggle with what, whether that means they've failed somehow. And if they've failed, then maybe let just walk away from the faith. We must not give the impression that if only you know your Bible well enough, or if only you know all the right answers to all the challenges Christianity faces, then you won't struggle, you won't doubt. Right? What our young people need, ultimately what we all need, right, is not all the right answers, right? but a big enough view of the person and work of Jesus that says, like, I'm weak in myself, I can't do this. But I trust that Jesus lives in me and that He has overcome the evil one and that His power is made perfect in my weakness. We must remember, as John is writing to remind us, that we have already overcome the evil one. We know the eternal God. Our sins are already forgiven. And now, we can live confidently in light of that knowledge. So John moved from reminding us of the facts of the situation to telling us how those facts should impact how we live our life. And namely, he tells us that the victorious, eternal God who died for our sins but deserves our love and affection. Our love should be directed towards God and not towards the world. Our love must be rightly oriented. In verse 15-17, through John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John says, "Do not love the world." But that needs a little clarification. Like after all, like the most famous verse in the whole Bible, like, John three sixteen says, like, "For God so loved the world." Right? Like, and it's not hard to wonder, like if God loved the world, that like, then shouldn't die. Right? Like, but throughout the Bible, the word "world" gets used in kind of three distinct ways. Sometimes it's used just to refer to the earth, like planet earth. Sometimes it refers to like, all the people in the world, and that's how it's used in John 3.16. Like, for God to love the world, meaning all the people in the world. But then other times, the word world is used, as it is here, to refer to what one author calls the organized evil system with its principles and its practices all under the authority of Satan which includes all teachings, ideas, culture, attitudes, and activities that are opposed to God. That's what John means by world here. John says, do not love those teachings, or those ideas, or those attitudes, or those activities that are opposed to God. And then John goes on to give us a little more detail about what he means by world, when he says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And we could spend a long time talking about right, the differences in those categories that John gave us. Like what things fall into the category of lust of the flesh versus what things fall into the category of lust of the eyes. But if we could kind of just sum it up briefly. Like John's saying that we love the world either when we either first have an inappropriate desire for things we don't have, or we have an improper pride in the things we do have? Do we have an improper desire for things we don't have? Or do we have an improper pride in the things we do have? And so one way to do that is to have an improper desire for things we don't have. And you can do that kind of two ways. One, kind of the obvious way, it's improper to have a desire for something that is totally, completely contrary to God when we desire something that is clearly against God's commands, right? whether that be revenge or illegal drugs or sex outside of marriage, like, those are all clearly improper desires. But there's another way to improperly desire something, I think one we're probably all more prone to. And that's to desire something that's not wrong in itself, but to, but to desire it in a way that shows that you love that thing more than you love God. So it's not wrong, for example, to own like a brand new, nice, high-end car. Right? But if God has placed you in a stage of life where what you can reasonably afford is a you know, 10-year-old, dependable, unspectacular car, right, it is wrong to covet a high-end car so much that it reveals a discontentment with where God has placed you. Right? Or worse, it like gets wrong to covet that high-end car so much that you're willing to do unethical things, or make unwise financial choices to get that car. So it's wrong to love the world by having an improper desire for things that we don't have. But it's also wrong to have an improper pride in the things we do have. And John calls this, like, the pride of life. If you're in a position, for example, where you can own and you can afford a brand new high-end car, It's wrong, John says, to show off that car and boast about the car and all that you did to earn that car without acknowledging all the good gifts God gave you to put you in a position to get that car. To focus on what you do, what you do to earn all the things you have and then boast about it is nothing more than another way to love the world. And John says, we must not love the world. And he gives us two reasons why. We shouldn't love the world. The first of these reasons, a theological reason. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we know God, if we know our sins are forgiven, because he sent his Son to die on the cross for our sins, if we know he is the eternal God who is from the beginning, if we know, as John said, that through him we have overcome the evil one, if we know him, then we will love him, and we will love what he loves, and we will hate what he hates. Love for God and love for the world cannot coexist. And Jesus says this clearly in Matthew 6 when he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. God and money. You cannot love both God and the things of the world. Like You must choose. And if you truly know God, then it's not a hard choice. Knowing God and all that He did for you should be more than enough reason to, have, to not love the world. But just in case it's not, John gives one more reason. And it's a very a practical reason. When he says, the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. All the things of this world that we that we might be tempted to love, they're ultimately temporary. You can dedicate your life to satisfying every desire you have. You can spend your life collecting earthly possessions. Like, but for what? It's all going to eventually pass away. Again, Jesus illustrates this point better than I could. When he says, he the parable when he says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. You can dedicate your life to the things of the world, but eventually like your life will be demanded from you. And all that you have acquired, and all the earthly Desires that you have satisfied will be worthless. But the one who gives life gives his life to a loving God and doing the will of God will get to continue to enjoy that love and to glorify God forever in eternity. As we said last week, and as I'll say often, it can be easy to get things just a little bit twisted when we read passages like this and start to think that like the proper response To this passage is to will ourselves, to force ourselves, to stop being so materialistic so we can please God. But we must keep the order straight. We must remember that John started by reminding us who we are and where we stand in our relationship with God already. He reminds us that our sins have already been forgiven, including our love for the world. He reminds us that we are already, we already know the eternal God. He reminds us that we have already overcome the evil one. Then, having reminded us of that, he shows us how those truths should impact our lives. He shows us how all that God has done already should motivate us to live a life dedicated to Him. If you find yourself in a season where you're feeling tempted and you're feeling drawn to the things of the world. The solution is not to try really hard to love the world less. The solution is to remind yourself of God's love for you and all that He has done for you. But the problem is, we're we're forgetful creatures. Like We're so quick to forget all that God has done for us. We try to do life and live life on our own power. But the good news is that God knows this. He knows we are prone to forget. Which is why he gives the church tangible reminders of his love and goodness to them. And one of those reminders is communion, which we're about to partake in together. In fact, when Jesus was instituting communion at the Last Supper, he tells us that remembering what he did for us It's the very reason for communion. He said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What more tangible reminder of how much God loves us can there be than to hold a piece of bread that represents the broken body of the Son of God, who allowed his body to be broken because he loves you? What more tangible reminder? of how much God loves you can there be than to drink a cup of juice that represents and reminds us of the blood of Jesus that He spilled on the cross freely on our behalf so that our sins might be forgiven. And this morning, we had the chance to participate in this beautiful God-given reminder of how much God loves us. So, hopefully you grabbed an individually wrapped communion cup on your way in. If not, I'm about to pray I won't judge you if you, as I'm praying, slip to the back and grab one of those and then come back to your seat. Right? And as I said, like, this is a reminder for us of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, right, you've never trusted in Jesus, Like we're glad you're here. And our hope would be, not that you would partake in this with us, Like there's no magical power here, right, but that you would trust in Jesus. With that in mind, let's pray Father we we thank you we praise you that you constantly remind us through your word you constantly remind us through the spirit living in us you constantly remind us through the means you've appointed like communion how much you love us how much you care for us You remind us that our sins are already forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, on our behalf. And as we prepare our hearts and our minds to take this communion, to remind ourselves of how much you love us, God, we pray that you would just quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, and give us a new sense, a new Fresh feeling for how much you love us, how much you care for us. And now just in a few moments of quiet reflection before we take together, I would invite you to reflect and just remind yourself how much God loves you. And to consider how that now should impact how you live your life. Just have a few moments of quiet together. Haven't yet removed your wafer from your cup, I don't want you to do that. It take a little bit of work, I'll give you some minute to do that. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for reminding us of your love for us. We thank you that you care about us, that you died for us because we could never do it on our own. As we prepare to leave here for that you would remind us of that constantly as we go throughout our week. That even when we fail and we don't do what we know we're supposed to do that you still love us you still care for us and our sins have already been paid for. for in Jesus' name Amen. Now churches we prepare to depart so that you be encouraged and that God would remind you day in and day out that your sins are forgiven, that you know the eternal God, that you have overcome the evil one. Go in peace.